Good evening, folks. This is your host, Wes Dodson. You are listening to the Texas Orator Podcast. It is Tuesday, October 9th, and we have a very special edition of the show today. Here at the Town Hall, we have two Libertarian candidates for statewide races in the 2018 elections for Texas. We have Mr. Neil Dykeman, who listeners of the show heard yesterday on the podcast as I had an extended conversation with him. He is the Texas Libertarian candidate for the Senate race in 2018, running against Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. We also have Mark Tippetts. He is the Libertarian candidate for the Texas gubernatorial election in 2018, running against incumbent Greg Abbott and Lupe Valdez. We have an incredible opportunity to talk to these individuals today here at the Texas Orator Town Hall, an open forum for students to come ask questions about independent candidates, third parties, what the role of libertarians and third parties is in 2018, and how the candidates think that they can solve some of the issues facing Texas voters today. This will not be news to listeners of the podcast previously, but if it's your first time, I want to let you know that your host, myself, Wes Dotson, is a bit of a jackass, and I did not have all of my audio equipment properly set up at the beginning of the town hall, so the uh, first bit of audio, the first couple of minutes of Mr. Dykeman's answer to the initial question uh, are missing, so I apologize for that. The rest of the audio... Uh, there are moments where listeners uh, can hear people asking questions. Those individuals did not have mics, so that audio can be a little bit shaky. Uh, so again, I apologize for all that, but if you power through it, it should be a good listen. These individuals are very eloquent. Um, the first question on the floor is, can either of you or both of you explain libertarianism to someone who is not intimately familiar with it? And here is Mr. Neil Dykeman's response to that question. So, you know, a bunch of retired people show up because that's who shows up at those forums. And one of them, Lewis, walks up to me, and Lewis has got to be twice my age. And Lewis, uh, I shake his hand, and I smile and start my little stump speech and tell him, you know, I'm Neil Dykeman, I'm running for U.S. Senate, et cetera, et cetera. And he looks at me, and he stops, and he says, you know what? If you get in the U.S. Senate, I want you to remember one thing. That's not your chair. That's my chair. You work for me. It's the only thing he wanted me to know. That's about the most libertarian principle I can think of. Libertarians are not anti-government. We're not anti-community. We just think it works for us. We set it up for a reason, and it needs to do what it's told. Yeah, it's, yeah and um, if you had to kind of add one governing principle to that, only do at the federal level what one We've given them the right to do in the Constitution. And two, can't be done better at the state and local level. Full stop. Those are the first two questions you ought to ask. And then the third one, the kind of the corollary to all corollaries, yeah, if you're going to pass a law and you're going to start something, if you're wrong, because half the time we're going to be wrong, how are we going to get out of it? If you follow those principles, you end up, most times with the libertarian answer. Put, put sunset on every bill that you ever possibly can pat, put a sunset clause so, on it. So here, here's, my, here's my soapbox. I'll give you an example. Why is your health insurance tied to your employer? Anyone? 
yours isn't because y'all are still either on a parent's plan yeah. or a school plan. But when you get out working, but that's how it got started. Why is it tied to your employer? Why are your, why is your parents' health insurance tied to your empl their employer? Because during World War II, 75 years ago, this, this will freak you out. During World War II, the government was running the Herbert Hoover plan from World War I. The Herbert Hoover plan said we put price controls on stuff and price controls on wages. Companies not allowed to wait, raise wages and gouge the government during wartime. Okay, fine. Temporary, short-term thing. The big companies, which were at the time almost exclusively and heavily unionized, and were used to basically beating up on little companies by getting great labor by, over, by paying more money because they were bigger and you know, they've got the franchise. They said, well, hang on, hang on. How are we going to compete with the little companies, with the small business? So there was this, this new thing. All right, fine, fine. Temporary deal. Temporary deal. We will let you guys, companies, deduct the cost of this new thing called health insurance. Right? And income tax rates at the time were real low because they started off at like 4% and have been growing ever since. Yeah, but uh, at least up until the 80s. And uh, so we're going to let you deduct this stuff. At the time, it didn't cost very much because tax rates were low and it was only a handful of companies that were offering it. So war ends, all the other price controls go away. But insurance companies in the meantime had been like, oh, this is a great deal. I, I don't actually have to go sell you know, Brook or Wes. I, I don't have to sell you insurance. I can go to your employer with a tax-subsidized deal and get your employer to reach into your paycheck, pull my revenue out, and put it in my pocket. Now, of course, insurance is just insurance. Yeah, it's just a risk pool. It, it should all cost the same if the risk pools are equal and the actuaries aren't stupid. Yeah. So how do you compete? Ah, I got a new bright idea. I will go and sign up doctors and hospitals and tell these guys, hey, I can reach into my customers' paychecks through their employer with this tax deal and give them the money. You just have to join my network. This is where the private network concept came from. And so we've got an entire industry that basically vertically integrated off that bad, stupid, short-term tax deal. And our whole insurance healthcare funding industry grew up. We have never had a free market system here. It's all been a tax-subsidized bad deal. In fact, for most, most of you and most of your families, any uh, company with over about 150 employees self-insures, meaning there's no insurance company. Your employer is actually the insurer of record. The insurance company is just processing it. So now we got a system where the doctors and hospitals don't work for you, they work for the insurance company. The insurance company, and there's only three of them in every state, if you include Medicare four, that have 95% market share. It's a little oligopolies. Every state's different, but every state is an oligopoly, it's a cartel. The insurance companies work for your employers. If you try and go to an insurance company and buy the same deal they just sold to your employer, they will tell you no. If you try and go to a doctor or hospital and get the same deal they've given to your insurance company, oh, I'm sorry, that's not the same. We don't have that. That's, that's, that's network. You're out of network. What the hell? Out of network, right? What's it cost to deliver the procedure? Healthcare is just like any other tech industry. The cost ought to be deflationary, going down every year, getting more bang for the buck every year. Every other tech industry is except for this one. This one is like college education. It's gone up at twice the rate of the, of, of, uh, the GDP, right? All based on one bad tax deal, which sounded like an okay idea, basically a Band-Aid for those wage controls for a short-term couple of year period that once it was started, never got undone because once it got going, a vested interest built up, 
and then it ain't getting out of there. And 75 years ago, we're arguing about things like single payer, which is one of the most patently bad ideas on the planet, because it looks better than the miserably indefensible system we've got based on that tax deal. Yeah, one bad idea off good intentions. 75 years, you are still going, you're going to be paying this price for decades. There's um, one word I want to say here. Uh, some people call it lobbyists, whatever. It's called cronyism. Whenever you get... Libertarians like that word. Yeah, we, we, we like it. But yeah. <laughs> it is, but totally is. When, and when you get, and, and here's a typical example, you got government and big business involved and in bed with each other, and it got to the point, and it still is, where the insurance companies heavily fund whoever they want to be in office. Both they, sides. They, both sides. Yeah, yeah. Th to them it doesn't matter so long as they funded the right guy and can pull the right strings. Um, uh, I mean, without naming any names, Nancy Pelosi, but, uh, you know, I mean. <laughs> uh, but the, the, this is where everything has gone awry, is when we have big businesses in bed with government. That is where you can trace anything back to there. Health insurance, health care, what they call health care, how much does it have to do with health care? Zero. It's health insurance. Because health care, health care itself, doesn't cost one-third of what they build insurance companies for. I've got an example. I had a, a gallbladder surgery. When I, when, make a long story short, I was done. They handed me a bill, $75,000. I said, I, I don't have insurance. And I've got all the paperwork to, to, sh to show you. I said, I don't have insurance. I said, I am uh, an international uh, consultant. I have no insurance. I'm going to, they said, how are you going to pay? I said, well, once we work out a deal, I'm never going to pay you 75000 I said, I can hire lawyers to, to fight you on it a lot cheaper than that. I said, but once we work out a deal, I'll just pay you for it. I paid $7,800. There's no industry in the world that can discount 90%. That tells you straight up it's all fraud. It's, it's all fake. Total fraud. Total fake. Typical margin for a retailer is 50%. When they put something you know, on sale for half off, it means they're basically dumping it and losing money. You, you can't do that, right? The marginal costs, don't, that that's a, doesn't make sense. It, it's all, you know, and give you another example. When, um, uh, when my first daughter was born, the, we got nine bills from nine different, yeah, nine different vendors. I don't understand a single word in, in, in any of these bills, and I'm not a stupid guy. And every single one of them had errors in them, material errors, and none of them in my favor. One of them, they literally transposed digits, yeah, from the top of the page to the bottom of the second page, yeah. And um, uh, so you'd call them up and you'd ask them for, yeah, for for the backup. They don't have any backup. Why would they? They don't actually work for me. So I told them I wasn't going to pay them until I saw the backup. And they said, well, then you'll go to collections. And I'm like, look, like, look. Every corporation in America, if you walk in and hand them a bill and there's not a contract up front with that little posted price and, and AP, the accounts payable clerk can match the contract and say, stuff was done, here's the approval, and the dollars here match the dollars there, yes, I can pay, you will never get paid. You think you're going to send me to collections? Go ahead. Yeah, um, women's hospital, nine months later, they call up and they're like, well, how about 30 cents on the dollar? I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, and at this time, insurance has already paid them yeah, and same thing, the, the total bill is like 200,000 bucks. Like, it does not take $200,000 to, to have a baby, right? Yeah, the final bill, the insurance paid like seven, and they wanted me to pay another five. 
you know, discounted down from like 12. I'm like, guys, you've already gotten paid. You're just trying to sock me with the difference that you couldn't get the insurance company to pay. Why should I be paying that difference? Obviously, it's above your negotiated rate, right? And then when I ask up front, guys, uh, I have a real high deductible plan because that's the way you keep insurance costs down. How much is this going to cost? Oh, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You, you, your, your hospital says you deliver 10,000 babies a year. This is my first, right? I know nothing. You obviously know how much it costs to have a baby run through your hospital. Yet you do 10,000 of them. Just tell me what the average is. Yeah, tell me what the distribution is. I, I know you have it. You, there's, there's a data set. I'm like, oh, we can't tell you. Well, why not? Because we haven't figured out what we can bill your insurance company for yet. Like, well, hang on. I didn't actually ask what you thought you could code my insurance company for. And, what, and they literally, they go and, and mess with billing codes until I'll they code maximize it. their number, and then they dump the rest on you, but they can't explain the difference. It's complete fraud. Complete and utter fraud. But, th but this is what happens when we have business, big businesses running our government. And I mean, how do you stop it? I mean, it, it, you, you want a, a, a problem that's really hard to, to solve. I, I want the physics department at UT trying to solve that one. How do we solve that one? And, and it, it, it's the same thing, it, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, healthcare, which has nothing to do with healthcare. This, this one lady, I was talking to her, um, and, and she was Maria um, Hinojosa anyway, she, had, she, she was so proud that she finally had insurance. And I said, well, what plan did you get? She said, well, I've got a platinum plan. And I said, fantastic. And this was back before they, when Obamacare was real hot heavy. And I said, okay. I said, what do you pay? She says, I pay $50 a month. I said, good, and what does that cover? She says, for me and my daughter. I said, fantastic. I said, now, how much did you have to pay before? Well, well nothing. And you, did you have insurance before? No. Okay, now, you pay now, $50 a month. I said, also keep in mind, now you have the privilege that if you don't pay those $50 a month, at the end of the year, you're going to be charged, you're going to be penalized because you didn't have insurance. But now you have insurance. I said, that's fantastic. I said, and, and you've got the platinum uh, uh, plan, right? And I said, okay. So that platinum plan, I said, correct me if I'm wrong, there is a $40,000 deductible that you have to meet every year before uh, it pays anything, correct? She says, yes, but I've got insurance. Yes, you've got insurance. I says, and how many years since your daughter was born have you ever spent $40,000 on medical bills? She says, oh, well, never. I, I, I would never, ever spend that. I said, but now you have an insurance plan that you pay $50 a year, and I, if I don't have one, I have to pay a penalty at the end of the year because I don't have one. I said, and she goes, well, that sucks. I said, exactly. She says, well, I was told that this is a good thing. I said, yeah, but they never explained it to you, did they? So, so go ahead. Somebody ask about single payer so we can get it out of the way. Yeah. Uh, but All right. The question on the floor, what is wrong with single payer health, health so, system? Yeah, so real, 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 real simple. Single payer and Medicare is basically a single payer system. Hell, we have a four payer system now. What, what you're basically doing in single payer is trying to restrict price. Problem is it doesn't adjust cost. So you either lose service or quality. And usually if you don't deal with cost, you see the costs eventually continue to rise and eventually that puts pressure back on, on the price again. The issues that I've been describing with our current payer system, 
They're the exact same whether your insurer is Medicare or Aetna. They're the exact same. The, the, the costs, the, the, the cost structure is not under control. What we need really simply is to manage cost. And cost means competition. Now, the, um, uh, and that doesn't mean just a public option. What it means is the ability for you to actually do a deal straight with your doctor and straight with the hospital and make them compete for your business. Strip the insurance out and make it just insurance. If you really think single payer is the cheapest, that the government does insurance cheaper than, other, um, than any other insurance company, let me give you a couple of examples. So FEMA, which is bankrupt. Uh, our SIPC pension system, which is bankrupt. Oh yeah, Medicare, which is functionally bankrupt with $12 trillion in debts because we're underpricing and overcommitting. It's, we want to expand a bankrupt system to cover everybody because it's cheap. It's bankrupt for a reason. So at some point, you actually either have to get costs moving in the right direction or we can't cover people. We won't even be able to cover the people we have. Now, everybody wants universal coverage. And frankly, if healthcare costs were deflationary, universal coverage is easy. If, if costs are headed in the right direction, there are a thousand ways for us all to have health insurance. If costs keep going up at double the rate of GDP, yeah, just take the extrapolation. Eventually, you run out of money. And that's what's happening. We're now seeing pressure after ACA. We're seeing pressure on the even the, even the employer-sponsored plans, and employers pay about 75% of the bill now, we're seeing pressure on the employer-sponsored plans because they can't control the costs. They've run out of their tools. The, the tools were basically the high-deductible plan, which works, but has some, call it collateral damage when, when, when you do it. Yeah, because, but we've, so we've never actually addressed the cost issue itself. Yeah, um, and the only known tools to do that, so high-deductible plans work. The reason they work is not because they're high deductible. It's because you have the first dollar risk. Insurance companies know this. You consume differently. Now, unfortunately, we put in the high deductible plans, but we limited, as Mark was saying, we limited the plans to only covering certain things or some stuff they can't not, not do. So we put a kink in the system. And then worse, we didn't give you the ability to actually shop the insurance or the doctor direct. So we end up without an ability to drive the cost down. So we took the first tool, but we didn't finish the job. Right? If we finish the job, we may not even need the high deductible plan anymore. Let me tell you how, how employers do it. Right? Employers, and all big ones, are self-insured. You have first rule of insurance, and if anybody hasn't told you this, do not ever forget this point. First rule of insurance, do not insure what you can afford to lose, ever, full stop. The insurance company is making margin on you. If you, if you have the cash, if you have the balance sheet, do not buy the insurance. Don't buy a collision on your car if you have enough money to buy a new car because it's a really bad deal. And the same, otherwise, the insurance company would not be offering it. You know, the same is true of health insurance. So what employers all know that. So no major employer above about 150 people in the entire country actually carries insurance. They just pay for it themselves because their pool is big enough. Then they buy a stop loss policy that says, if my aggregate healthcare costs this year go above, give, uh, give an employer's eyes, $10 million, then insurance company, reinsurer, you basically agree to pay any amount above that. And stop loss policies are dirt cheap. Catastrophic insurance is dirt cheap, dirt cheap. We just bundle it 
with a dirt cheap catastrophic insurance, which we all need, because frankly, even I, I mean, I can get bankrupted with you know, one really bad, bad health care. You could run up $100,000 of bills in, in 60 days. Yeah. Um, but we bundle that with preventative care, which is also dirt cheap and actually can change the, the, uh, the, the clinical outcomes. And then we bundle that with the expensives part, which is some elective and some non-elective procedural work. And since we've bundled all these together, and that's what single payer and Medicare propose to do, is rebundle them and remove all the remaining choice from the system. So then what we will get is just a bad bundle. Think about it like your, um, uh, your AT&T triple play. It only works if you actually need every single one of those things every month. Otherwise, it's a really bad deal. Your best move is to buy them all separately from the cheapest provider since they're basically just commodities. Fundamentally, uh, single payer, to bring it down to fundamental basics, uh, single payer is, is uh, nothing more than, than socialized medicine, but socialized insurance. Uh, the fundamental flaw in single payer is the government should not have the right to force anybody to buy anything and let alone have the right to force my tax dollars and your tax dollars to, to take and um, subsidize it because that's what the single payer uh, program is. It's all subsidized and it's all controlled by the insurance companies and it has absolutely nothing to do with health care. If we really want to talk about health care, that's a total different issue than what everybody talks about health care because it's just insurance. And, 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 you, and you're smiling because you've seen all the hospitals on the U.S. side of the border in Chicago and, and Michigan yeah, that cater to Canadians when they actually want service this month and not next year? Well, we'll no, 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 wait, 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 no, I'm not going to let you finish that. The studies you're quoting, so what I want you to go find, find a study that discusses outcome independent of the pool. What, what happens, we actually have a very bad health pool, right? We do not do preventative care very well in this country. We don't fund it well, I should say, or people just don't go to the doctor. Yeah, one thing, the single-payer system in, in uh, the, national, the NHS in the UK and Australia and a few of the others functions like Kaiser. They'll make you go to the doctor, right? We don't actually tie our funding program to that. So when these guys measure outcomes, they're measuring apples to oranges. They're starting with a sicker population in the US on average yeah, that has more health issues. And then they are measuring yeah, that to a, that is less homogenous. And then they're measuring that to a more homogenous and less sick population in smaller countries. The, out, the outcome example that you need to find, and the research literally has not been done, if you walk in to a hospital or to a doctor's office in the U.S. versus pick your favorite country, and you are, and, and, and the people walking in are all the same equivalent of sick, they have the same problem when they walk in, is the service you get 
a better service for that clinical condition at that point in time. Every study simply glosses over that and just says, well, how many people died this year? Which is useful information, but it doesn't actually tell you which healthcare system is better. I'll flat out, our healthcare funding system is indefensible. Uh, our healthcare system, our doctors and hospitals, are the best in the world. When we measure outcomes, and the people measuring outcomes have a very vested interest in doing this, they are measuring outcomes, bundling those two together, and not looking at the healthcare system differentially from the funding mechanism. Okay, let, um, let, let, let me add a little bit to, to that. And I won't quote you statistics, and I won't quote you anything. I'll quote you reality. I was born and raised in Mexico. They have social medicine. Most of my clients that I have, that I represent, are Canadians that own property in Mexico. I'm very familiar with both systems, okay? Both in Mexico and in Canada. Those systems, the socialized medicine systems, cater only to the poor. Cater only to those that cannot afford it, because those that can afford it go somewhere else to get health care. They, well, they come here, they go to Europe, and I can, I can name at least 20 people that have been in line in Canada waiting two years for a hip replacement but surgery. Remember, if, you, if you restrict and, price exactly. and don't do anything to cost, either service or quality, and service in this instance is when you can get served, has to change. You, you, there are no free lunches. Now, if, if, if that's what you're saying that we should do in the United States is create a socialized medicine that caters only to the poor and the rich can, or not even rich, but that, that halfway can afford it, can go somewhere else to do it, I don't want to pay that with my tax dollars. The, the, the system in, in Mexico and the system in Canada, a lot of people will say, well, yeah, they have medical, it's all socialized medicine, we don't pay anything. Try to get service, though. Go ahead, try to get service. I know so many people that have died because of an appendicitis, something just simple, because they could not get service. So many babies that have, been, that have died in the womb because they cannot get so, service. So, so when we talk about socialized medicine from Canada or Mexico or whatever, I tend to get a little emotional because I have seen firsthand, and I don't quote stats or anything, firsthand I have seen what happens when you have socialized medicine. If you restrict price and you think there's no impact, you're smoking crack. Well, here, here, here's, another, here's another thing. Here, here's something that, that you can go right out of here and just check right off the bat. These are the fun while, medi while medical uh, expenses, costs, She's laughing at which us. is ridiculous, while medical costs are going up and up and up and up, those that are, con those that are being paid by insurance, the medical procedures that insurance will not cover have gone down. Eye surgery, go ahead, check it out. LASIK eye surgery has dropped 10 uh, to 10% of what it started out being, and it is better than what it started out. Why? Because insurance doesn't cover it. So it had to. To compete, it had to. Um, I actually wanted to add another um, cost of you know the healthcare crisis here in the U.S. So I worked for a um, malpractice insurance firm uh, over the summer, and one of the things- Just those that, words cost me the willies. Keep yeah, going. yeah, it was cringy. Um, <laughs> I can admit that. But one of the things I talked to um, you know, the doctors that are insured through them about uh, was that there's like this huge problem that doctors are being paid so little through like the current healthcare system that like even like I can not, 
I can quote like in Florida, they're worried that by 2020, they're not going to have enough doctors. So, so uh, it's, it's worse that than can, that. That the can perform like are so. paid. There, there's a, it's a set matrix by procedure. And sometimes the matrix is right. And sometimes it's wrong. And sometimes it's close, so it really doesn't, it's not that big a deal. Sometimes it's way wrong. So we end up with that outcome of there's not enough doctors by specialty and by procedure, differentially in different markets. It makes for a really wacky system. And that's why you see outcomes where you know, some stuff just doesn't get covered in some cities, but not other cities. That's what I was going to say. Like, yeah, they, they were saying in like Florida in particular, they were really worried that they're like by 2020, they are going to be lacking something like 10,000 um, neurosurgeons, like these right. high yeah. risk, a, uh, a specific specifically specialty. high risk specialties that like doctors don't want to enter them because they're paid so little. And also, I mean, of course, like malpractice and, problems. And then also like there are things, you know, like medical deserts where you can be in a rural um, area and just not be able to get help. And th this is need. back to that core problem with government intervention that you just have to be careful of before you put a policy in place. You, you know you're going to be wrong half the time. And if it's something like creating prices, sure, you know you're going to be wrong. You don't know where, how, or which one. But how are you going to get it to adjust? The market mechanisms are not perfect, but the very the the only thing they have going for them is a forced adjustment mechanism. And yeah. But once you get it wrong in a government system that is based on voting power and becomes a series of entrenched interests, interests holding on yeah, to that particular vested interest, or as economists call it, the rent seeking, once that happens, there's no easy way to get it out. So the collateral damage tends to compound, and small errors yeah, uh, tend to compound over time. Just, just to finish on, on healthcare, and then we, we, can, love this we can move on. The, the private practice of uh, medicine is is one of the areas that is closing down faster than anything and they are going all the doctors are going to work for the big corporations they cannot afford to have a private practice anymore they cannot afford to be a general md anymore because of all the paperwork so uh mr dykeman and i talked on the podcast yesterday about gerrymandering and kind of mentioned in it's our other favorite topic right glancingly and so we'll get a kind of, of long topic. tirade but mr tippets you're running for texas governor yeah you're gonna fix this and so this is a very kind of um you know germane topic to what your role would be and so could you outlay the position or the the problem in texas with gerrymandering and potentially talk about your solutions and then broader national solutions for that issue as a whole well, um, as you know, in, in, in 2020 is the next census, and uh, obviously it, it's put in the Constitution that every 10 years there will be census specifically for that reason, not for gerrymandering, right. but for, for the representation. Um, you cannot get true representation. The, the gerrymandering is what has created, it has created what I call blue lagoons throughout Texas, where you have you don't have true representation. You have blues and reds and blues and reds. And, and, and it is, I mean, if you actually broke it apart and tried to get somebody to put the puzzle back together, it would be the most complex puzzle to put back together you ever saw. As far as a solution, that, that is something that has to be done on the legislative level, uh, not federal, but uh, state. And as long as, as governor of Texas, and this is a very, very important issue, a libertarian governor can have so much influence because I can tell the legislators, look, I don't want blues and reds. 
I want representation of the people. And if you give me a, something to sign that has blues and reds, I'm going to veto it. So y you better take and stop just dividing. Because you had people like uh, a, a guy who's a real good friend of my wife, uh, Smith, uh, who's now going to retire, thank the Lord. Uh, I mean, he, he ran unopposed most of the time. Didn't so, even have so to do how, anything. What, what percentage of races do you think this year are unopposed? Yeah, there's about, um, about a third of the races in Texas this year for state, just state and the federal, only have one, either Republican or Democrat. There's a, that comes down to about a quarter when you add the Libertarian on the list. The primaries is dramatically worse. Yeah. What percentage of races are actually competitive out of the 200-odd races in Texas this year? 5%. About about five percent, maybe maybe eight or ten, something on that order, depending on which which poll or survey you read. You read, yeah. Uh, on what planet should there ever be a race that only has one choice in it? If if that's not an indictment of the system we have, I, I don't know what is. That's actually why I started running. My state rep sells voter data for a living. That's his day job. He represents me in. <laughs> I'm not I'm not making it up. You can't make this stuff up. Yeah. He represents me in the state house. Yeah. He has run been what. This is fifth or sixth race. He has been unopposed all but, I think, once. He sits on two, in both the primary and the general. It's a safe Republican district. He sits on two million in campaign cash. Now, if you run unopposed, why do you need campaign cash, you ask? Very simply, because he's trying to chill competition in his primary. And if you're dumb enough to go run as a Republican, yeah, in a safe seat against a guy sitting on two million in cash in a state rep seat, oh my God, you're just gonna get blown out of the water. So nobody runs against him. Then you get to the general, and it's a cakewalk. He's got a he's got a Democrat running against him this time, so he's actually out knocking on doors, you know, thankful thankful for small victories, but they don't have a chance. They're gonna get blown out of the water. It's a safe district. The stats just they, they don't lie. Right? The guy is sitting on cash to chill competition in his own party to keep a safe seat. Yeah, people ask me at every, every stop, what about term limits? We don't need term limits. We need every race competitive. That's it. But, I mean, and taking it to the state level also, uh, who is going to run against uh, the incumbent that's sitting on $50 million of cash? Greg Abbott. In, 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 in before the, it started. Yeah, before it started. Who, so now, there was a, some people that they put up just to make it look uh, pretty, but who, who is going to really run against that? Now, now here's, but, the good, here's the good news. Yeah, who likes Donald Trump in this room? Raise your hand or don't. Right? But this is, this is a good news story. This is a silver lining story. All right, you, know, you, don't, you don't have to answer that question. That was a trick question. <laughs> so, Jeb Bush going to run for president. You know what Jeb does? He raises cash before he announces. And their target, they did not pull the trigger on the announcement until they had 100 mil in cash in the bank pre-raised. That's not illegal. Oh, no, God, no. The campaign committee was set up. He just didn't make the announcement. It was exploratory. I got, I got calls from, you know, hey, we're raising money for Jeb. You know, he, he's going to win this year, right? The good news, he never pulled above 2%. That's a lot the of good it's news. committed money, too. Yeah. Right? No, no. It's, the, the good news is it's actually not about money. And if we think about the money in this race, my race, my, my competitors are raising on the order of $3 million a month. Right? I've, 
never, I've launched seven companies, and I never had more than about 300 grand to launch any one. They're raising three million a month to go after a Senate seat. So most of that cash is, is, is um, well, frankly, it's not needed. It just cancels each other out. But if you look at the national level, the GOP made an announcement there the other day that they're basically going to have to give up on backing some, some, some House seats because they don't have enough cash. Well, there's only like 30 of them that they're fighting over, and they're running out of money. We can bankrupt the entire funding system if every race was competitive. If instead of having to fight over 50 races where all that campaign cash, which is not really that much cash, what do we got, a billion dollars a year flowing into this, flows into just a handful of races, if they had to fight for every JP and every county judge and every county clerk and every state and every congressional rep in this country, we would bankrupt the political funding system. It'd be done. Pretty soon, you're not going to go throw money into a race because you're just going to throw it down the rat hole. Instead, what we, this gerrymandering and the safe seat syndrome has allowed us to do is funnel massive amounts of cash into a handful of races that affect the outcomes at the margin for our final vote count in a Senate that is divided where only five people have any power, and those are the ones willing to cross over party lines. And you know what's going to happen next time? Those five races, they'll get attacked. Yeah, um, uh, Murkowski will get attacked. She did the last time. She got knocked out of her primary. She ran as an independent and as write-in and, and, and took the Republicans down, right? This is the model. That's why I'm running. That's why I'm going to get my butt kicked by yeah, a, a, a big government lawyer pretending he's a small government conservative because somebody needs to do this. You don't get to just go run the table in safe seats because you happen to have a party label. If I wanted to win, oh, trust me, I'd go be sitting in a safe Republican or Democratic seat somewhere. I'd have gone after one of these guys in the primary, taken him out, and had a cakewalk in for the rest. That's the way you play the game. I'm running as a libertarian because my values cut across party lines and because no race, no, no year should there ever be anything on your ballot that's not competitive because every race ought to be decided in the general election, not some primary somewhere, and because money shouldn't matter. And, I mean, you, you asked... Uh, what's the solution? Okay, um, and the solution uh, actually it is it's much simpler than than you think. Uh, remember, I said earlier that we cannot solve problems with the same mindset that created it. We have the Democrats and the Republicans created all these problems, and they like to blame each other. But the bottom line is is these problems is what feeds the beast. They're the beast. The only solution is if we have a third-party uh, governor. If we have a libertarian governor, then the Democrats and Republicans will truly do the work of the Texas people. They will no longer be fighting amongst each other to take and see who can get a, a bill passed. They will know what they have to do because they will know right from the get-go whether I will veto it or whether I will sign it. And that is the only way if we do not have a balance in being there to balance the two parties out, it will continue the same. If we do not elect a, a especially in, in the governor's race, if we do not elect, and I know it's self-serving, but if we do not elect, if there was somebody else running, I would say either one of us. But if we do not elect a third party governor, this problem will never go away, and you will be asking these same questions next go-around. Mark my words. Remember, remember my words. Next go-around, you're going to be asking these same questions, 
But if we have a libertarian or a third party candidate as governor, then you will see the Democrats and Republicans truly getting the work done, not just the work done that they that their constituents wants done. They, they have they to do that the work of all Texans. They need to stop talking to their little bases and stop listening to the general you know, population in the middle of the, of the country again. There's a reason 75% of Texans don't aren't going to vote this year. You know, it's because people don't resonate with the choices that come out of the system that we've got. But you're not going to change that in the primaries. What we've been seeing for the last 20 years has been attacks on the right to the Republicans and attacks on the left to the Democrats, forcing them to, to the edges. That's what's take because the generals are safe seats. They've all been gerrymandered. We take one race from the middle, and this year, yeah, uh, I've had four or five media sources say, we're going to change this race. We don't know which one's going to win, but well, one of them's going to lose because of me. Once that happens, once we start impacting races from the middle and changing outcomes, the world changes. Then you take one race. Think about it in the U.S. Senate and the, and the, and the Kavanaugh confirmations this year. Yeah, it, there are three people we're talking to about and been talking about for three months. Three senators. Three. That's it. There's 100 senators there. You only hear three because there's only three that are not voting straight party on literally every single thing they do. When voters start to do that, these guys have to change their game. And they'll change. Oh, my God, they will change fast. They're not dumb. They know, they know how to change. Well, so let, let me ask you this. You, you guys obviously like politics for fun. What is the role of a third party in American politics? Why are we here? According to the AP test, the senior AP test, it's to introduce new ideas and to pull votes. Yes, it's to make them listen. Right. Exactly. Make, create change. Third parties, if we do our job right, we get wiped out because the main two party just subsumes the ideas. Both, both the Democrats and Republicans now have on their platform legalizing marijuana. You know why? Because we've been pushing it so much. It's been, it's been gaining so much backing that now they're going, excuse my language, oh shit, we better get on this bandwagon too. We changed that. Well, when, once Ted finally agreed to debate Beto and Beto finally agreed that the terms weren't awful, Ted got on national TV and called himself a libertarian in front of every American because I got his campaign manager rattled. And because they think that everybody who votes for me would vote for Ted as a second choice, which is not true, but that's what his little model says. Yeah. And and the th the thing is though is the ideas that we put forward come from you. They're from everyday people with everyday ideas that cannot get through to the blues and reds. I was at a at a. Uh, 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 a marijuana medical marijuana policy uh, the other day and and this uh i won't name his name uh but he's a blue uh, he got up there and boy he was i mean spitfire the reds were responsible for everything it was all the republicans fault and he didn't know that i was slated to speak right after him and uh so then when they introduced me he he got this pale look on his face and the, the the moderator didn't understand why he got the pale look on his face until I opened my mouth and I said you know you, you can talk about it is time for a blue wave you can talk about it is time to to correct the war on drugs and and to stop all this I said where were you 50 years ago this this has been something that both parties have been compounding 
all along for over 50 years. So don't tell me that we need now a blue wave to solve this problem. We don't. We need more libertarians to remind you what you need to do. So, and, and, and that is what our role is. Obviously, we would like to get elected. Imagine what we could do if we got elected. Uh, that that is uh, total 100% false. Um, uh, here here is what happened to the with the Gary Johnson. Uh, he and I did not believe this until I saw the actual numbers. He was being and he's uh, an advisor on my campaign by the way. But he was he was getting a lot of a lot of polling numbers. He was he was gaining grounds. Uh, I mean it it was phenomenal what he was doing. You you remember? Well, it scared Hillary Clinton so bad that her campaign dumped 50 million. Uh, keep in mind, Gary Johnson's entire campaign was 15 million dollars, 15. She dumped Fifty million dollars, five zero, of in to make it so that anybody who Googled Gary Johnson, they would have to go to like the fifty sixtieth page to get anything positive about him. Everything that came out was pure negative ads. That's how riled he he got Hillary Clinton. That's how riled now that we could be influenced by foreign uh, uh, companies or uh, countries or whatever, the, the idea as by being hacked or anything like that, I think you know that that's as, 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 as easy to, to hack us as it is to hack Hillary or, or, or anybody else. The, the difference is, is if they hack me, they're going to laugh their ass off because there's nothing there to hack. So they're going to go, oh, man, we, we can't influence this guy. Cause, and if they tried dumping money into it, I mean, the red flags would go up so fast because all of a sudden, where did all this money come from? Where if you have a campaign that has $500 million and all of a sudden another $100 million came in, now nah, what the heck, they got more donors. But where we would be influential, I doubt it. Now, go, uh, just a little bit more about Gary Johnson. He now is running for senator in New Mexico. And he is seven points behind the Democrat incumbent. And the Republican isn't even polling at five, six percent. And he's about to drop out. There's a race that could set the, the Libertarian Party totally off the charts. Then the, the idea of you can't get elected, or the idea of a vote for a libertarian is a wasted vote. And let me address that just for a quick second. You vote, you and you alone are in the voting booth. Your vote is between you and your conscience. The only way that it's a wasted vote 
is if you try to use it to manipulate something else. And if, if you are using it going against your own conscience, then it's a wasted vote. So, so I, I get asked every single day, five or 10 or 20 times, by voters on both sides and have been asked by both campaigns to drop out of the race. Both sides seem to think I take more votes from them than I do from the other guy. I consider that a testament to the fact that we pull cross-party lines. You know, our values have more in common with more of Texas than either of our competitors. But you, you asked the question of, you know, can bots game me better than they can game Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke? So Beto founded one 10-person web design company. Ted Cruz is a government lawyer who can't spell budget. I've founded seven tech startups. You really think that I'm going to get outgamed by a bot that can't outgame them? I mean, come on. You know, you take my track record before, before they got into office, the stuff they've done doesn't even show up on my resume. Yeah, so yeah, you throw enough money, you can game systems. But that's why I come back to the core campaign finance problem we need to solve is every race competitive. So yeah, come after my race. Try and game one Senate race. If we're really competing across the board in every race from top to bottom of the ballot, we will bankrupt them. The Russians don't have the cash or, or the software engineers to deliver on that. Not if we're running every race, right? When we're gerrymandered and self-selected and only down to, to 20 races that matter in the entire country and that's all the media talks about and all where all the cash goes and where all the packs go and all the efforts, yeah, you can game anything. That's what we need to change. And that, that in and of itself is really the real issue, not whether or not foreign countries can hack us or influence our election. That, that, that's a, a smoke and mirror games. That is causing noise over here to not see the real issue. The real issue is the big corporations that, that they are truly controlling our elections for obvious reasons. Well, that's where we have to what focus What happened on in 2016 it. is the same thing that happened in Brexit. And I happened to be on London the day the Brexit vote came in and watched the shell shock on people's faces. And it was the same shell shock as the day after the election in 2016, right? It's real simple. There's a large chunk of America that does not feel listened to. And you know what they're doing? They're doing the same. They, they, voted, they voted for you know, Barack Obama and then they voted for Donald Trump. And why do they do it? Because they're trying to take a two-before to anyone who is still in Washington and doesn't understand they're not listened to. Now, maybe they might have different policies that they'd like to see happen, right? But there's a divide, and we saw this same divide in Brexit, where the vast majority of Britain, the part of Britain that was going to be economically hurt the most by Brexit, voted for it because they're not feeling listened to over issues from immigration to trade to income inequality and to, to wealth creation to jobs. That, that's what's happening. Middle America just said no, right? And if, you, and if you think the system was really gamed, realize we've had some elections where yeah, the, in the presidential you know, uh, years for the last 20 years where, where the, uh, the, um, uh, the electoral vote was different than the popular vote. But in all the cases where that happened, the electoral vote winner won 60% of the states. And I happen to think it's a great thing that you have to win in all parts of the country in order to win the top. Because our country was not founded yeah, as, a, as a popular democracy. It was founded as a state-to-state -state compact. That's what the Constitution is. It's a state-to-state -state deal designed to protect little states from big states and single states from groups of states. That's why senators yeah, were not directly elected up until 100 years ago. 
That's why the Electoral College still matters, right? Because that's the only reason a presidential candidate ever goes to Iowa or New Hampshire. This is one of the final basic protections of our democracy. If I had to pick two, it would be the state-to-state -state concept and the Second Amendment, you know, followed very, very closely by the first. That, that, would, be my, that would be my rank order, right? We are a federal republic where we can do things at state level to provide the check on the federal government. And what we've seen for years is we've seen this, this shift of power from states and our local control to Washington, the shift of power from Congress, whose job it is to make the laws. The president's job is to do what the hell he's told, do what Congress has told him to do, faithfully execute the laws, and provide vision and leadership, and nothing else. And Congress's job is to rein him or her in whenever they fail to do that. And then the final, the final shift in power we've had is this, this shift from the voters in the general elections to primaries. Well, the prime, I got, go, if you, you said one of the gentlemen here was saying they like to talk about the original esoteric you know, political philosophy stuff. Well, go read the Federalist Papers. These people did not believe in parties. They did not. They were, they were flabbergasted and angry that parties emerged. And the Federalist Party comes first, right? And then the, yeah, the Jeffersonians come along after, but they did it to aggregate power. And if there's one thing we gotta keep in mind when we think about our checks and balances and how you vote and how you approach politics, it's that this aggregation of power for power's sake to keep people in office so that they can go run this little career ladder, start at city council, run for congressman, then run for senator, you know, this is not the way the world is supposed to work. You're supposed to go to Congress, go to Austin, go to your city council, get elected, do your job, and go home to your family. You're not supposed to do this for 40 years. You're not supposed to end up as an octogenarian sitting in the Senate with some young staffer who's never had to run an election, making all the laws because, hell, you're 88 years old. This is not the way it's supposed to work. You're not supposed to have to, yeah, you're not owed anything. But, the, but this isn't on me. This isn't on a third party. This is on you. One of our founding fathers said, heaven help us if political parties run this country, which is what's happening now, is we have political parties running this country and running it into the ground. And they are trying to, uh, Hillary Clinton has openly stated that she would like to get rid of the Electoral College and just have the United States a democracy. The United States is not a democracy, and that's what keeps us uh, as safe as we can is because a true democracy is nothing more than mob rule. Because if we do not have a republic that is based on laws, now we democratically elect our the, uh, officials, but we are not a democracy. Because if, if we were a democracy, we could all vote to take your car away. And so long as the majority voted, you're out of luck. That is not what we were meant to be. We were meant to, like Neil said, to serve and go home. That was it. The reason that they put the elections on Tuesday. Does anyone know why they put the elections on Tuesday? Was it so farmers could get Thank into you. the city? It was because Sunday was the Sabbath. Was They all went to church. Monday they could do the work that they had to or could travel to where the polling booths are. That's why it was set on a Tuesday. Is it, it that simple? Does it have to be that way now? No. But that, that's why it was set there. 
But if we go against our founding principles, if we go against those and try to, to change those, and there are those that say, well, we have to be progressive. Well, wait a minute. Uh, it, it, we have stated that all rights are ours, belongs to us. And if we progress from that, actually we're going backwards because what we're doing is we're taking rights from us. The government is limited. If we progress in that and give them more power, we're going backwards. Finding modern solutions does not mean devolving more power to a centralized authority. Absolutely not. The, the, <laughs> you asked us about uh, uh, libertarian fundamental principles. <laughs> One of them as far as what the way we view government, you can actually take it from Smokey the Bear. Keep it small, keep it contained, and keep an eye on it. That is the best philosophy for government. Alrighty. Well, we, uh, I apologize to listeners that the uh, conversation about college and rising college cost uh, or rising college price, sorry, Mr. Dykeman, um, was not recorded, but we do have chemists that have philosophy tests to study for. We have lawyers that have astronomy tests to study for. And we have lawyers with astronomy tests. I'm not even sure I know what to make of that statement. Well, neither do I, but we do have to wrap it up here. Um, so I'm going to ask that y'all both give closing statements. And in light of your position as independents in a heavily, you know, two-party dominated system, um, if you could, in your closing statements, talk about what voters should be considering when they look at third parties, when they look at independents as opposed to you know those two major parties, and then we'll wrap it up here. So I, I, I get this question a lot, and, and the, the, the question that we get hit with is, you know, well, if I vote for you, isn't that taking a vote away from Beto or Ted? And it, it frustrates me, because it, it's not actually their votes, and they're not my votes. And you'll notice, I have not stood up here, and I have not asked you for your vote, and I'm not going to. I'm not gonna ask you how you vote. I'm not going to ask you to vote for the Libertarian Party. I'm not going to ask you to vote straight party at all. I'm going to ask you to vote your conscience. I'm going to ask you to stack rank policies from top to bottom. Stop voting single issue. Why? Because single issue is the way a politician games you. They, they can figure out what your issue is. Then they segment and market to you. And they deliver only on that issue. An issue that will take up 5% of their time. Right? It is literally one of the mechanisms to game you. But a lot of our, you know, a lot of our population votes that way. 65% of Texans will vote straight party this year. Voting for a label is not voting. That's the giving your power to someone else. You need to stop voting. Stop voting for your third choice or your second choice out of fear of your third. So you need to vote for and not against. I want you to go to my website. I want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to Ted and Beto. And I want you to go through and figure out which one of us you have more common ground with. And then you get in the voter booth. You know, between you, your conscience, and God. And you make your call. And don't tell me which one it is. I don't need to know. It's not actually my business. Right? It's your vote. And if you don't like what I'm doing the next time, you send me home. Because I work for you. And the sooner these politicians in Washington, and the sooner candidates like me understand, and don't forget that I work for you, and that I'm there to do a job, not run a career ladder, and that it's not my vote, and I'm not owed or entitled anything, the sooner your world's going to be a better place. I'm running as a libertarian, and I'm doing it on purpose. 
I understand the odds. I founded seven companies. Yeah, I've launched startups. I've held every executive job in a startup. You, you, you think I don't know what tilting at windmills it is to run in a race like this as a third party candidate? I'm taking months away from my life, from, away from my three and five year old because of them and because of y'all. Because you guys deserve an actual choice. You guys deserve to have an option. And you deserve a set of policies that works. But you're going to get in the voter booth and you're going to make the call. And then we're going to live with the results and the choices that you make. So again, I'm not going to ask for your vote. I'm only going to ask for the opportunity to earn it. And I don't want to know how you vote. I just want you to do your job just like I'm telling Ted to do his. I, uh, like, like I mentioned before, <clears throat> I, I was uh, born in Mexico and was raised on both sides of the border. I'm, I'm very, very familiar with the international issues uh, that, that Texas and, and uh, Mexico and that we have to deal with. Um, and I have dealt with every profession you can possibly think of. I have dealt with every bureaucracy you can possibly think of. <clears throat> I have uh, studied and developed hydroelectric plants in Belize, Central America. Uh, I have litigated internationally. I have dealt with anything from small villages to large municipalities to roads to anything that a state has to deal with. I've dealt with it. And I was not allowed in the uh, gubernatorial debate, <clears throat> not because I did not meet all the requirements, because they did not want me there. <clears throat> and I was asked, are you upset because you didn't get to say your piece? And I said, absolutely not. And they, they, I was asked, it kind of caught them off guard, and they said, well, why not? Didn't you want to say your piece? I said, no, it's, it, it's not about me. It's about Texans. They didn't get the chance to hear other options. They did not get the chance to hear anything but what they have heard for hundreds and hundreds of years. The reds and the blues <clears throat> saying the same thing over and over. And if you get a chance, if you didn't see it, if you get a chance, look at it. <clears throat> and you will see what I'm saying is true. What the Republicans said is something that they've been saying for decades. What the Democrats are saying, you could take the playbook from 50 years ago. It doesn't change. This is not about me. This is not about the Libertarian Party. This is about you. This is about the voters of Texas and their right to hear from people who make it on the ballot. Do you know how hard it is to make it on the ballot in Texas? First off, you have to gain, just to, the first time around, uh, I think it's 80,000 signatures. And they have to be valid signatures, so you have to get at least twice that. And when you get those signatures, it's after the primaries, and anybody who voted in the primaries cannot sign your petition. So imagine how many signatures you have to get, and then to stay on the ballot, you have to get at least 5% in a statewide election. That gets you on the ballot. 
So with all the hundreds of thousands of people that worked and voted and everything to get somebody on the ballot, to deprive the voters the right to actually hear what he has to say. Like Neil says, I, I'd never ask anybody to vote for me. I, the only thing I say, this is who I am. At the bottom line is, it's between you and your own conscience in the voting booth. Alrighty, this has been a night of town halls talking about ideas and tilting at windmills as this ragtag bunch of political junkies attempts to stoke the fires in the hearts of young democrophiles across the campus. We have asked questions about policy, partisanship, and participation, but the more pressing question on everybody's mind is why won't this alliterative idiot shut up? So I will leave you all there tonight. This has been the Texas Order Town Hall. You are listening to the Texas Order Podcast. I thank everyone who joined me here tonight and who is listening at home and encourage you to check out our other audio productions here at The Order, which you can find in our iOS stream as well as on Spotify, SoundCloud, and anywhere where good podcasts are hosted. If you haven't already, please rate and review us here at the Texas Order Podcast on iOS and join us in the future for more wonderful things to come. Again, I am your host, Wes Dodson. This is the Texas Order Podcast. Thank you and good night.